This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 68, and we are recording on February 14th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Happy Valentine's Day! Or something. Whatever. <laughs> Insert grumbling blah, blah. here about commun- consumerization of feelings, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Liberty texted me happy Valentine's Day this morning and it was a really cute bitmoji yes. and I responded with bah humbug. <laughs> I sent her a panda gif in response. I was good like, job. how about good we'll job. have pandas instead? Sure. Grumble, 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 grumble bah humbug, blah. About cis heteronormativity <laughs> capitalist, blah, blah. Welcome to Get Booked. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so we're cheerful mm-hmm. people. Um, so this is, as I said, a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you are new, this is how it works. You send us your reading recommendation request, whether you need, you know, something for your book club or a trip you're taking or you read X title and want something like it or whatever. You can email them to us at getbookedatbookriot.com or you can drop your questions in the uh, form, which is in the show notes um, for every episode on the site. If it's time sensitive, please note that in the subject line of the email or if you're using the form at the very top of the form so we can get to it um, on time. We also email back um, responses if we're not going to get to your question and it's time sensitive or it's a question we've already answered on the show, we will email you back with our recommendations uh, so you don't have to wait around for us to cycle back to it, which can take a hot minute. (laughs) Uh, So that is how the show works. So we're just going to dive right in. We're going to do our first question. Jen's going to talk about our first sponsor and then we will give you answers. All right. Our first question is from Didi, who says, I am suffering from a hangover, not a book one, a TV one, which never happens. I just finished season two of Fargo, and I am obsessed with trying to find fiction books with a similar feel or plot line. What it basically comes down to is a turf war of two crime families, but it shows a lot of the betrayals and moves by each party. I have always enjoyed detailed fights for power in literature. I'm a big fan of the Ice and Fire series for this reason, and I'm told I will like the blade itself. An obvious choice seems The Godfather, but I read this in my teens. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Oh, yes, crime families. Gotta love a good (laughs) crime family. Um, So before we give our suggestions, I want to tell you all about one of our newest newsletters, which is called In the Club, and it is for you if you have a book club, a book group, whatever you want to call it. Um, If you lead Mm -hmm. one, if you're a member of one, if you're thinking about starting one, it is a every-other-week newsletter in which... I myself, me, uh, give you (laughs) some... Pointers, some book lists, some recommendations, sometimes there are recipes, um, and I also am including picks in each newsletter that will work towards this year's Read Harder Challenge. If you're in a book club uh, that's doing Read Harder, this is like a great way to figure out um, what books you might want to pick for those. And I'm including links to like more picks for the challenge and all kinds of different things. So basically, my goal is to make your life easier because I know how hard, we know how hard picking books for your book club is because we get at your emails all the time. Um, so yes, so that is called In the Club. And if you go to bookriot.com and click on the newsletter sign up page, you will see it there. And yeah, I, let me help you pick your next book, basically, is the gist of In the Club. So yes, uh, you should check that out if you have a minute. All right, Amanda, what do you think for crime families? Okay, so my first pick is Dune by Frank Herbert, yes. which is <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you, uh, which is extremely the Godfather in space. Um, so it's very just just what it is. So the the main character's name is Paul Atreides. Oh, I've never said that out loud. Whatever, um, but I have seen all the movies, so I should know how to say it. Doesn't matter. So Paul is the heir to the house of uh, Atreides, or however you say it. Um, and so the all of the families in this series of books, I think there are six, but they continue um, way past that. His son took over the franchise, and there's, so there are tons of books. Um, every family has a controlling stake in like the economy of this empire and ruling um like politics and all that kind of thing and so his house is sent to the desert planet of arrakis which is where um this thing they call the spice grows and the spice is this uh plant 
situation that run like makes this entire cosmo empire galactic situation run because the um the ships that travel through space in this empire need it to uh, navigate. So without it, the the empire would, would functionally fall apart. And so, of course, since that's such an integral um, part of the politics of this universe and involves so much money, there's tons of machinations and behind-the-scenes political intrigue, and the entire series is basically all of these houses battling for control of the spice and battling for control of the empire and killing each other in really complicated ways. Um, and it's great. I mean, it's very Game of Thronesy, and I really, really like it. Um, and there's a new uh, adaptation coming out soon for TV, I think. Do we or believe it it's really going to happen? I don't know. Like, uh, I have I skeptics I talk- in, in my brain about that. Oh, really? Yeah. I, oh, they've been trying to I do hope it. it does. They've been trying to do it for years. Like, this is, like... Round 8,432 of bringing Dune That's real. to TV. So, I don't know. It's hard. It's I feel like it's hard to adapt because it's mostly about giant sandworms, right. which are not fun to look at. <laughs> and also, like, so much of the book is about logic versus empathy. Yeah. And so, a lot of the machinations and, like, the political intrigue is done with, like, people sitting down and having really long conversations about reason right. and logic. Which, how do you put that on the screen? Yeah. It's just, it's, like, weird and hard to adapt. So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, if it happens, I'll be, I'll certainly watch it. I've seen all of them, and they're all very bad. Did you but. see the documentary about the making the Dune movies? What? No. no. Okay, somebody was just telling me how good it is. I'll find you a link. Um, but somebody was telling me this weekend, in fact, how good it is. Uh, so, yes, that's a thing. Um, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Before I start, like, <laughs> quoting random lines from Dune, which I am restraining myself, you have no idea. Fear is the mind killer. <laughs> the spice must flow. Okay, okay. Um, I will talk about my... Fear is the little death. I can keep going. I Oh, Lord. Amanda and I have, like, our Dune fan club, like, pins on right now. (laughs) Nerds! Okay, Uh, so my first pick for you is another sort of uh, Song of Ice and Fire type. Uh, It is the Acacia series by David Anthony Durham. The first in the series, which has three books, trilogy, I guess, um, is The War with the Mine. And I love this series so much. Um, It is less sexually violent than Game of Thrones, which I appreciate a whole lot. Um, and But it's got, like, this, this world, like, literal world-sweeping politics. So the premise is that there's this family who are the ruling dynasty, and um, there is a plot, and the king is assassinated. King, ruler, whatever, emperor. I think it's he's technically an emperor. And um, he has four children, and they are all smuggled out of the capital one way or another on the night of his death, or immediately after. I can't remember exactly the timeline. Um, But anyway, they get, like, taken away and scattered to, you know, none of them are together. They're all sent in different directions. Some of them fall into enemy hands. Some of them are, like, left to fend for themselves. Some of them end up with allies. Um, And it's basically them trying to get back and uh you know continue this this dynasty um and and then you also get the people who have you know created the whole situation and sent the assassin which is this like northern step rugged like ice axe wielding you know people um who are super gross um which is kind of delightful like it's 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 complicated um and it's a little bit gross and it's pretty violent but not super sexually violent and uh lots and lots and lots of politics and people having feelings and betraying each other and switching sides and oh my gosh it's 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 everything you want uh so yes that is the acacia series by david anthony durham the first one is the war with the mine Okay, my second one is The Transmigration of Bodies by Yuri Herrera. It's translated by Lisa Dillman. Uh, Yuri Herrera is an excellent writer of noir fiction from uh, out of Mexico, and I love this book so much. It's tiny. Like, all his books are really short. Um, so it's tiny, and in this city that I don't think is named, a plague has come. People are mostly hiding out in, um, in their houses, <clears throat> excuse me, trying not to die. And in the midst of all of that, two crime families um, kill each other's children, maybe, you don't really know at the beginning. So uh, in one of the families, a boy, he's like a young adult, dies, and they blame the other family. So they kidnap one of the daughters, and then she dies. And so, like, did they die because of the plague, or were they murdered, or whatever? And so they bring in the main character, whose name is the Redeemer. Everybody has, like, weird nicknames in this book. Um, to broker a peace and to uh, set up an exchange of bodies without the whole situation falling apart. And so there's a lot of behind-the-scenes... Um, 
I keep saying the word machinations. I really should come up with like a <laughs> synonym for that. Uh, plotting. There's a lot of behind the scenes plotting. You get kind of into the worlds of these two families and the history of what caused them to become feuding crime families and like what the nature of their um, crime empires are and uh, the Redeemer's history, how he got involved, all that kind of thing. And this is all set against this backdrop of like a, it's not a dystopian plague, like the world has not ended, but it's certainly like this, it adds to that sense of danger and isolation and kind of like suffocation because all the characters like walk around in masks and every, like birds are dying and it's all just very creepy. So that's The Transmigration of Bodies by Yuri Herrera. All right, my second one is another series. It's another fantasy series because that's where most of my crime families are. Honestly, like I don't <laughs> so many crime families in space. I know. Or like, <laughs> other universes, right? Exactly. Like for I don't know for some reason I didn't I couldn't think of any that were mystery or contemporary. Anyway, okay, it doesn't matter. It's really good. Um, it's the World Breaker Saga uh, by Cameron Hurley. The first book is The Mirror Empire. The second one is out, and the third one is coming out this year. Um, and this is bananas. Okay, so basically how this works is that not only are there, like, different factions warring for power in various nations around this sort of, like, I don't know, like, they have some weird, like, plant technology, but they're not, like, super, like, going to space. Um, So it's, like, a different kind of society. It's a little medieval-y. They don't have, like, cars and stuff. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so not only are there, like, power plays within that, just, like, the normal, like, here are a bunch of countries. Of course there are going to be power plays. But on top of it, their world is is under attack from an alternate version of their world. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) And And so some people are coming through from that other world who are, like, different world versions of people who already exist in this world. And, like, so there's, like, people posing as themselves but are not themselves, and you don't know who to trust, and it's all really intense. Um, The other thing that I love about this series is that Hurley, in in Hurley's world that she's built, gender is very fluid and there's a bunch of different kinds and also there's a bunch of different rules about depending about gender depending on which nation you're in um and she's like flipped the script in really fascinating ways there is a lot of violence in this fyi and a lot of sexual violence too um it's pretty gory uh and um but i think she's like doing something different with that grimdark thing so that's like if you're interested in that it's a really interesting way to sort of spin it um and she's just a great writer she's a great plotter like there are so many people and so many plots and you're just like what is going to happen so um that is the world breaker saga by cameron hurley uh the mirror empire is the first book okay question two is from an anonymous listener who says i'm planning on coming out to my mother is non-binary the trouble is that my mother doesn't quite understand what that means she learns best through fiction and loves to read so i've been looking for books that have relatable non-binary characters to help her and me out uh, unfortunately, I haven't had much luck. She read and enjoyed The Left Hand of Darkness and Ancillary Justice, but I'm looking for something that's straightforward and modern with its approach. The best thing would be a character that actually discusses being non-binary or uses them, they pro- uh, pronouns, but books with people or species with more relaxed gender roles could also be helpful. She likes science fiction, fantasy, and historical novels the most, but would probably be open to other genres of fiction or non-fiction that has a storyline. Okay. So my first uh, pick is Hold Me by Courtney Milan, which is a romance. You said she's open to other genres, so I'm hoping that that is real. <laughs> but this is an excellent, excellent book. Um, and it is full of a lot of gender diversity, both of the main characters, the hero and the heroine in this book. One of them is trans, one of them is bisexual, and the secondary characters... Um, most of whom have their own books in this series, it's the Cyclone series that she's written, are also gender fluid or non-binary. Um, and there is a lot of um, a lot of different pronoun usage. There's they, them, there's zizhir uh, pronouns that are not made a big deal of. Like, it's just worked into the conversation. So if you're looking for something where that's just how people address each other and it's not noted in the text or the prose and that's just how it is and everybody is fine, then that's a really good pick. Another thing that I really love about this book is that everyone in it is super dorky. Like, they're all um, scientists and lab workers and, like, tech geeks and bloggers. And um, I feel like that's a little bit, not rare, but it's like, you don't, I haven't read a lot of romances with scientists main characters, um, especially women scientists, which is a a big deal. Um, and it's just, it's like page turnery. It's very sweet. I just really like it. I just like it a lot. So that's Hold Me by Courtney Milan. 
So good. Um, it's so good. I, I just love it. <laughs> I haven't read that one yet, but I read Trade Me, which is like the earlier one in the series, and I loved it. I will get to it eventually. Okay, uh, so my first pick for you is one of the first books next to Left Hand of Darkness that blew my mind about gender. I think I read it when I was in college for a class. It's Written on the Body by Jeanette Winterson, which is just an amazing book. Um, it, Especially when you consider that it was like published in 1992. So it is a very sort of simple-seeming novel. Um, about a person who is thinking about their current and past relationships, but you never find out the name or the gender of the narrator. And you never, like, it's really, it, it, and and the, the current object of their affection is a married woman. Um, and so you have no idea what kind of relationship this is, and it doesn't matter. Like, that's not the point. The point is the feelings that the narrator is having for their beloved, and um, the point is, like, what kind of things are universal and have nothing to do with gender, like, emotionally speaking. And it's just so... I remember having this, like, epic argument in the class that we read it for about what people had decided the narrator's gender was, and, like, nobody could agree. It was... And so I think that's just a feat of writing in the first place. Um, And Winterson is an amazing writer. She's written a lot of books that play with gender and and sexuality. Um, But this one is, like... Like, if you really want her to, like, think about how it just doesn't matter sometimes what your gender is, like, this is the book. So that's Written on the Body by Jeanette Winterson. Okay. Um, my second one is a memoir. So uh, Also, uh, it's Nina Here Nor There, My Journey Beyond Gender by Mick Krieger. And this is about... So Nina is born a woman, uh, and she... Is, Hmm, rethinking how I'm doing this. So she transitions, but it's not, she transitions to male, and Nick is the author. Um, and so it's um, it's not like a typical transition kind of memoir, because first of all, Nick is very wealthy. So there are a lot of the um, obstacles that transgender people face when they want to transition or come out or anything like that, he's not necessarily dealing with. Also, the thing that's interesting about it is that um, he's older, when he makes the transition. And so it's not, uh, I feel like a lot of, not necessarily memoirs, but even like YA fiction books about transgender people are often like they're coming out as children or teenagers and dealing with that. And that is all real and true. And, and those are important stories. But I, I just personally haven't read one um, where the character or the person writing it realizes later in life that they might be gender fluid or non-binary or not necessarily the gender they were assigned at birth and that kind of thing. So um, <laughs> if you read a lot of the reviews of this book, um, readers are put off a little bit by Nick and by Nina's the name that uh, he had when he was living as a woman because he's kind of like rich and privileged and a little bit of a brat but I think that that's necessary like it's not a um you don't have to like a person really for their for their story to be important and you don't have to um conform to an idea of what like the transgender narrative is to to write about what it was like for you personally. So I don't know. So I think that like, if, since you're coming out to your mother as an adult, perhaps a memoir of, of that situation from somebody who didn't start that transition until well into adulthood might be useful. Because I feel like when you're, you're having that conversation with a parent, especially if you're close to a parent, you might get those, well, why didn't you tell me sooner kind of questions. And maybe this will help address that. So that's Nina here nor there. My journey beyond gender by Nick Krieger. Okay, my second pick for you, you said she likes science fiction and fantasy, um, so I think that she will enjoy this one. It is Every Day by David Levithan, and what it is is a sort of, so there's a disembodied soul that is the narrator (laughs) of the book whose name is A, and every morning A wakes up in a different body. Uh, A is always in the same age range as it's their host, I guess, is the like weird but kind of accurate term. Um, mm. And this has been, like, as long as A can remember, this is A's life. And so uh, it's about sort of what happens when you fall in love, but you're not the same person every day. Um, and A has no idea when they wake up every morning if they're going to be male, if they're going to be female, if they're going to be gay or straight or bi or trans or whatever. Like, they're going to be black or white or Mexican or Chinese or who knows. Uh, they vaguely know what geographic region they'll be in, but that's, and what age, but that's it. Um, so you get a couple of, you get a time period of A's life jumping from body to body. And there is like a plot with like a quote unquote evil leap 
paper, to use a phrase from, what was that show? Um, oh, oh, gosh, Quantum Leap. There we go. Uh, <laughs> which is not the same, but, like, you know, in principle, kind of similar. So there's an evil leaper, and, like, A sort of has, there's this side plot with, like, you know, using A's powers for good instead of bad, um, like this evil leaper wants them to do. But really what, to me, this book is about is trying to reconcile just the changes that we all go through as we grow and develop and not knowing, like, how do you maintain a relationship with another person when you're changing every day. So this is, like, a very literal metaphor for that. Um, but I think it's, I think it does, it does the same thing. It plays with our expectations of what a person can be like, whether or not they know what gender they are on any given day. Uh, so that's Every Day by David Levithan. Have you not seen Quantum Leap? Sorry, I just have like a moment no, here. I have not seen Quantum Leap. Oh man, Leap. all right, well, that's, I'm sorry. that's okay. No, no, I <laughs> like, on Netflix? I'm trying to decide if I should recommend it or not. I don't know how well it ages. Mm. All right, question three uh, is from Christina. It says, greetings from my noisy library. I just loved that line. <laughs> I am the librarian at a smallish private denominational school in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was recently having a conversation with a few students who are really interested in conspiracy theories. They watch these videos on YouTube, which makes me nervous. They like conspiracies. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. Makes us all nervous. Uh, they like yep. conspiracies that have to do with history, particularly World War II. I have asked if they've read the usual theory conspiracy theory books, like the Robert Langdon books or the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Series, they scoffed, I don't read books. My question is, what might you recommend for these proudly reluctant readers? They are seniors, and I'd love to try to get them to read anything before they are out of my clutches. I've recommended the show The Man in the High Castle. I don't think they'd read that book, but I've suggested it. And I have some Dan Brown, John Le Carre, and John Grisham books to recommend. I don't want to just recommend World War II books or just books written by white dudes or dudes named John. They need <laughs> anything that will hook them right away and keep them hooked. Such a good question. <laughs> All right, Amanda, you go. Well, I have no dudes named John. So that is... <clears throat> there we go. Um, so my first pick for you is Hot Season by Susan DeFreitas. And I went with both YA for this. Um, maybe because maybe like John Lecrae might be a little aged for them. You know what I mean? Like not just that it's written by an adult, but like it's Cold War stuff. So I don't know how much seniors right now would appreciate that. I don't know. I don't know. Kids these days. Who knows? Um, anyway, so Hot Season is about a group of three kids who, well, kids, young adults who are like um, attending a college in Arizona. It's a deeply expensive school that focuses mostly on uh, environmentalism and things like that. And so they are all getting involved, more involved in local environmental uh, issues. One of them is having kind of like a radical environmental awakening. Um, the other, so a couple of the other characters are a little bit older, uh, and so we're already like entrenched in that sort of stuff. And it takes place in uh, like the post-Bush, kind of post-Patriot Act kind of years. Um, and so the farther they get involved in environmental activism, including like pipeline stuff that's happening in the book um, and damming of a river and all this kind of thing, um, the more ideas about their, their parents get concerned that they're becoming eco-terrorists and this kind of thing. And then uh, they realize or find out somehow that FBI agents have kind of come to the town because of they've been hearing stuff about eco-terrorist acts that are going to happen. And they have, like, infiltrated the college. So you, they know, these characters, these three girls um, who are living together, never really know if, like, the guy they're going on a date with is actually an FBI agent who's out to stop them from protesting a pipeline that's being built and that kind of thing. And then there's, like, more conspiracy theories and you got to, like, finding out who is who and who's actually working for the FBI. So it's not, like, high-level government conspiracy, although the government, like, the you know, FBI is the government. The gov- excuse me, the government is involved, but there's no, like, war. Um, but I think it's pretty relevant to, like, stuff that they might be seeing in the news right now. And um, it's a lot of, like, conspiratorial stuff about, like, digital privacy and how the Patriot Act has affected how people who are protesting and participating in politics can and can't do it. Like, just regular people, not politicians or, um, you know, wealthy business people or whatever. So that's Hot Season by Susan DeFreitas. All right. I picked a nonfiction and a YA. Um, The nonfiction that I picked was actually one that came up very recently on the show. It's The Secret History of the World by Mark Booth. We're having, like, a run on conspiracy questions. Um, 
And I picked this because what I would, like, you can't get them not to watch YouTube, right? Nor should they just stop <laughs> watching it. Like, there's valuable things to be learned. But I would challenge them as to the sources. Like, do these people on YouTube have sources? Do they cite their sources? Did they tell you where you can find more information? And then you hand them, you know, the secret history of the world, which is, like, meticulously researched, has all kinds of sources in it, and also has just, like, banana pants conspiracies in it. Um, and the thing that's great about books like this is that they don't have to read it cover to cover. Like, they can leaf through and find a chapter or a page or, like, you know, try to look in the index for references of the Illuminati or whatever it is that they're particularly interested in at the moment. Like, they can just kind of pick and choose. They don't have to sit... I mean, they could sit down and read the whole book, but they're not going to because they're seniors who don't read. So you might as well give them something that they can pick away at and, like, use to, like you know, maybe is something that they saw on YouTube referenced in this book? Like, are there sources? Where are the other materials for this? Uh, so in my head, that's, like, maybe a tie-in that you could give them that might, and you know, get them to think critically about what they're hearing and reading and, and seeing, uh, which is a super valuable skill that we all need to have is, you know, finding your source material. Like, fake news is real, people, so let's all think mm. critically about the things that we read and see before we retweet slash whatever. Uh, <laughs> soapbox over. So that's The Secret History of the World by Mark Booth. Okay, my second one is The Fixer by Jennifer Lynn Barnes, and this is, like, scandal for teenagers, if you've seen that show, which I'm obsessed with. <laughs> um, <laughs> Death to fits. <laughs> I want. I just want Olivia to strangle him with her thighs. Like this is. I need this. Time. Anyway, so um, main character in the Fixer, which is a series. So if they like it, you know, there's more that they can read. Uh, her name is Tess. She, uh, her parents ha died like ten years ago. So she's been growing up on a farm in rural Montana with her grandfather. Um, but her grandfather has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, isn't able to take care of her anymore. So her older sister Ivy, who lives in D.C., uh, comes and you know takes uh, Tess back with her to, to D.C. to uh, finish, you know, raising her, to take care of her, basically. Um, she sets her up in uh, Hardwick Academy, which is a really prestigious and expensive private school, high school. And as the book goes on, you discover that Ivy is a fixer. She's really involved in high political intrigue. She solves unsolvable problems for politicians and high-powered people in D.C., including the president and the first lady, who make appearances in the book. Um, and so Tess is there watching her sister do these things in the, and then is, like, attending this really expensive academy um, with other kids who also have their own problems, and Tess becomes a fixer, like a high school, like, Veronica Mars kind of character, um, goes around solving unsolvable problems for her really wealthy and powerful teenage friends. And so you've got the, um, the adult stuff of that happening, like, all of these really, like, actual conspiracies, and then Tess is kind of dealing with it on a smaller level, until you discover that maybe it's not a smaller level, and maybe all these things are connected in a way that I'm not going to tell you about because of spoilers. So, that's The Fixer by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. Nice. I like, anything that's, like, scandal. <laughs> it's the magic word. Um, okay, so my YA pick for you is Adaptation by Melinda Lowe, which is the first in the Adaptation series. There's two books and then, like, a novella. Um, and this is Area 51 for teenagers, or with teenagers, not for teenagers, with teenagers. Um, it's about a girl named Reese who has gone to a, like, debate tournament with her team partner, whose name is David, who she has a huge crush on, and um, their debate coach. And they are from San Francisco. They're in Arizona. And as they're heading home uh, at the airport, a bunch of birds, like, fly into airplanes all over the country. Um, and a bunch of planes crash. And all the flights are grounded. And they can't get home. And they don't know what's going on. And there's all of these different, like why would birds attack airplanes? Like, what is going on uh, situation? Um, and so they get into a car to drive home, and their debate coach is, like, murdered in front of them uh, at a gas station. So they have to, t they have to drive themselves, um, and they end up wrecking, like, somewhere in the middle of Nevada and wake up in, like, a top-secret facility and have to sign a non-disclosure agreement about the medical treatment they don't know that they got. And then they go home and are expected to just, like be teenagers again, but everything is weird forever now. Um, 
And so it pretty quickly becomes clear that, like, they have been physically altered, um, perhaps mentally altered by the treatment that they don't know what it was that they received. Um, maybe their houses are being bugged. There's people sort of inserting themselves into their lives who might not be who they say they are, trying not to, like, spoil anything. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, like, super, super-duper double-plus conspiracy uh, with teenagers sort of on the run around Area 51 and, like, aliens and UFOs and medical advancement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They're seniors in high school, so I don't feel like I should say this, but just you are a school employee, so I will say that there is some, like, quote-unquote content in here. Um, Reese is trying to figure out her sexuality, and there's makeout scenes with a girl as well as some feelings for a boy, and I don't know if the makeout scenes will, like, cause problems for you, um, but they're in there, just just so you know. Uh, but yeah, I think this series is great. Um, it's really well plotted. There's a lot to, like, grab onto, um, and the the kids are the same age as the kids you're talking about, so it might be, might be a good grabby one, um, and give them something new to think about aside from World War II. So that's Adaptation by Melinda Lowe. Okay, question four is from Erin. She says, uh, my name is Erin. I'm searching for recommendations of love poems or collections of love poems to send to my boyfriend who's in the Peace Corps. My deadline is February 1st. Whoops, sorry. We didn't see that. Um, So we saw this yesterday and put it in the show (laughs) immediately. So sorry about that. Um, Anyway, as I would like to try to get something compiled for him before Valentine's Day. Sorry again. I'm so sorry. He's been gone since last August and will be gone for another 21 months. Distance is hard. I know I like love poems by Wendell Berry especially The Wild Rose. I also like essays and poems by Mary Oliver. I hope that gives a good view into the type of love poetry I am after. Okay, so my first pick for you is 20 Love Poems and a Song of Despair by Pablo Neruda. It's translated by W.S. Merwin and Christina Garcia. This is, I mean, I don't know if that's a classic necessarily because it was, well, I guess so, sure, yeah. I don't know. It was published, uh, I mean, it's contemporary, so... um, Anyway, now I'm babbling. Um, <laughs> he said, I was like, I, I have this, you know, my notes pulled up right. and like part of a biography of Pablo Neruda is on here. And I just realized that that was a, a pen name. And I, oh, I didn't know that. that. Yeah. That he assumed as a, uh, as a teenager. Oh. And I was like integrating that into my knowledge as I was trying to think right. about how to just multitasking about Pablo Neruda. <laughs> so sorry. Anyway, so 20 Love Poems in a Song of Despair is his classic, I think, collection of both you know, as the the title indicates, love poems and also some sadness. And the thing that I like about Pablo Neruda's love poems is that they are all very sensual, but I wouldn't, they're not like erotic, you know, like you're not going to be weirded out by reading these on, in public, like on the bus or whatever. Um, But they're just so lovely. The 17th sonnet is my favorite one. I have a tattoo from it. Um, All of his, um, they're, they're like a little bit dark, um, he incorporates a lot of thoughts about pain and like missing somebody and longing and um and lust and like every aspect of love that's like it's not high flowing language and like I worship you and that kind of thing. It's just like it's very real and, and like gritty and a lot about like the body and I just I just love it. Anyway, so Pablo Neruda is twenty love poems and a song of despair. Seventeenth sonnet. If you're looking just for like specific poems, I would start with that one. Uh, okay, I have a website for you, uh, which I'm going to put in the show notes, but it's the pound, uh, the Poetry Foundation's page on love poems, and it has a bunch of specific ones called out, um, and so, like, obviously we're behind on this, um, but, you know, it, for future, you know, missives to your boyfriend, I'm sure this will not be the only time that you sent him love poems, uh, so, yes, <laughs> there are a lot more there um, that you would enjoy. Uh, my first collection that I'm recommending to you is well, it's really a, a poet recommendation, but the collected poems of Octavio Paz, I love him. And, like, I feel like he has a very similar vibe as Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry. Um, he is very thinky and philosophical, um, but also very into nature and nature metaphors. Um, and this collection is not love-focused, but you will find some in there, even if you just, like, skim the table of contents. Like, you'll see there are clearly, like, ones that are called, like, do the beloved or love. Like, you, you'll see them. Um, but I think just in general, you will really enjoy his poetry. I've read so many of them. And there are a bunch of great translations um, that have a side-by-side English and Spanish on them. So that's really lovely, too, if you uh, read in Spanish or um, would like to read more in Spanish. They have those as well. Uh, but yeah, he's just he's just an amazing poet, like a really amazing poet. And also a really good nonfiction writer. He wrote 
a bunch of great books about different topics, one of which is about love, um, and one of which is about, like, Mexico and the youth there, and I don't mm. even know. He's so smart and interesting. Um, so that is The Collected Poems of Octavio Paz. Okay, my other one is Love Poems by Carol Ann Duffy. Like, that's just what it, the collection is called. It's called Love Poems. And um, in a similar way to Pablo Neruda, she's not, these aren't just about, like, the nice parts of being in love. There's a lot here about, like, there's some poems about adultery, um, like the simple everyday stuff that you do for somebody that you love, that kind of thing. There's also poems about, like, unrequited love and how love is when it ends. But the reason that I thought of this specifically, there's one in it um, called Miles Away, which is just such a, like, lovely and really heartbreaking poem about missing somebody who's gone um, that I think applies very particularly to your situation. But all of the rest of her poetry is amazing. Warming Her Pearls um, is one of my favorite poems. And it's a really thinly veiled love poem about a servant who is in love with her, um, her mistress and, like, expresses it by warming up her pearls before she goes out. And it's just, like, really nice. Anyway, so that's Love Poems by Carol Ann Duffy. We don't have entirely cold dead hearts. <laughs> no. <laughs> not like, not, Happy Valentine's not, Day. <laughs> We have feelings sometimes. Um, my second pick for you is What Is This Thing Called Love by Kim Adonisio, which might make you feel awkward in public, just like fair warning, um, because it does have uh, poems that are very erotic in it. Um, it also has poems that are about heartbreak. It also has poems that are about like just like those weird mundane things that you do or don't do with the person you're in love with. Um, yeah, there's a, I mean, it's literally a collection of poems about love in all of its aspects so like Amanda was saying like the good stuff and the bad stuff and the hard stuff and the dark stuff it's all in there um I've had the pleasure to see her read a few times and she's just wonderful so I think there you would find some good stuff in here um for the hard stuff too because long distance is really hard uh so that is what is this thing called love by Kim Adonisio Okay, next question is from Jacinta, who says, In March 2017, I will start a new job teaching English as a second language at my alma mater. Most of my students will be from China, Saudi Arabia, Paraguay, South Korea, and Brazil. I'd like to learn more about these cultures and get an idea of what it would be like to live in these places. Can you recommend any books that are set in any of these places or are English translations from these countries? Oh, yes, we can. Amanda, you go first. Okay, my first pick is The Complete Stories of Clarice Lispector, um, which is translated by Katrina Dodson and came out in, last year, I think, from New Directions. It is amazing. So if you aren't familiar with Clarice Lispector, she's probably Brazil's most famous writer, I would say. Certainly um, most famous contemporary writer. Anyway, um, so she died, I think, in the 70s. But before that, she was super prolific and wrote from, like, her early teenage years up into her death. And this collection of her short stories follows her career um, pretty much through the entirety of her life, which is fairly rare, I think, for a, a female author, especially from the mid-century, um, where we're, like, always expected to take breaks for careers and for children and all that kind of thing. Anyway, that's a side rant. Um, so these, the short stories in here are very much about everyday life, um, domestic life, work life of people who were just doing the thing in Brazil. Um, so they start off with, uh, they're chronological, I think. So they start off with her, like, meditations on teenage sexuality that she wrote as a young woman up through, like, having children, what life is like being married, dealing with marital unhappiness, work-life balance, creativity, everything, like, all that sort of stuff. Everything that has to do with being a human alive in Brazil, she talks about. So that's The Complete Stories by Clarice Lispector. Um... Translated by Katrina Dodson. Yeah. All right, my first pick for you is for China. Um, it is Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan, which I'm going to go out of limb here and say that to me, these books, he's there's like a couple in this series from him, um, these books are like Jane Austen except contemporary and... Asian and, like, super rich characters in society. Um, they are so juicy and satirical and funny and smart. I really was, like, blown away by how much I enjoyed uh, these books. So um, it is... This one starts with a, an, a woman named Rachel Chu who agrees to spend the summer in Singapore with her boyfriend, Nicholas Young, um, who is, like, heir to, like, a massive... Fortune. He's one of Asia's most eligible bachelors, but she's like Asian-born Chinese, or, excuse me, American-born Chinese, which is a thing that's like maybe not always what people are looking for. Um, and you know, it just like immerses you in this like super upper wealthy class of China's like social and cultural. Um, 
politicking and gossiping and, you know, drama. Um, Super, super drama. So, I mean, there's so many good novels about, and memoirs, about China and the Cultural Revolution, but I was like, we don't really talk about, you know, contemporary Chinese culture that often, it seems to me. Um, So I thought this would be an interesting change of pace and is just like a super enjoyable read. Uh, So that is Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan. I am maybe cheating. With my next one, I just realized. So it's The Expatriates by Janice Y.K. Lee, which I really enjoy. But it takes place in Hong Kong, mm. which is not China. Let's, yeah, it's borderline, I, borderline. Yeah, do with this recommendation right. what, you, what you will. Um, I just realized that just now. Anyway, but it's still great. Okay, so anyway, it's, uh, you've got three main characters here, Mercy um, and Hillary and Margaret. So Mercy is a Korean-American. She's graduated from Columbia, but has, like completely not figured out her life. She can't find a job. When she went to Columbia, all of her friends and roommates were super, super wealthy, and she isn't. And so she's, like, used to a certain standard of living or whatever. And now that she can't find a job, she can't have any of that. So she's moved to Hong Kong to, like, reinvent herself, basically. Um, Hillary is a really wealthy housewife whose husband was, not shipped, what's the word, like, transferred to Hong Kong uh, for work. She wants to have a a kid, but she can't. Um, She thinks that will, like, save her marriage. And then Margaret is uh, also married. Her husband also um, was transferred there to Hong Kong, and she works part-time as, like, an um, interior designer. Or no, garden, or like a garden designer, architect kind of a thing. Um, and so something terrible has happened to her in connection with Mercy, the character from the beginning, and you're watching these three characters, like, deal with the aftermath of all of that. And I picked this because these are expatriates, right? These are people who are not from Hong Kong who have moved there and are looking at it from a kind of Western eye. And so I thought that would be an interesting lens through which to view that area um, with your students. But now I'm, but again, Hong Kong is not really China. But it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. I don't know. So, like, do it that with you all. So that's The Expatriates by Janice by Kaylee. Sorry about the cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My second pick for you is a novel uh, uh, about South Korea. It's Please Look After Mom by Kyung Suk Chin, uh, translated by Chi Young Kim. Uh, this book gives me so many feels. I'm just going to warn you. Um, and it was a bestseller in Korea. Um, and it is just a really... Whew, okay, so it's a family novel. Um, it, the book starts with a incident where um, the mother of this you know grown family, the aging mother of this grown family, is separated from her husband when they're getting on a train in Seoul um, to go visit their grown children's families. And for the father's birthday, um, and just disappears. Nobody can find her. Uh, they they're putting up posters. They're you know calling around the hospitals and like everybody's like, how could she just disappear? Um, and so the book alternates perspectives um, in a really interesting way. Some of the chapters are written from second person, um, but they're different people in the book. Um, the first one is her daughter who is single and is a writer. And then there's eventually a chapter from the father's perspective, um, who also is second person, and then some are third person. Um, and you get these different family members, you know, views of like, who was their mother? And it's it really dives into the this question of like how we see our parents as sort of one dimensional and don't really ever think about who they might have been, who they are on the inside. Like we just know them as mom or dad, right? Like we don't really see past that. Um, the other thing is that the family has kind of been in denial about the mother's decline. Um, she's not well in a bunch of different ways. She's mentally confused. She has terrible migraines. Um, she's just not healthy and nobody is really addressing it. Uh, so there's a lot of like guilt and recrimination and whose fault is it and all of this like family dynamic stuff. Um, it also is a really interesting look at sort of the generations after the Korean War. So obviously the, the parents... Um, um, grew up during that time, and, like, you know, when they started having kids, they were still very poor, they lived in the country, um, it was just a struggle to make ends meet, and then the kids now have, like, you know, they live in the city, and they have careers, and the daughter flies all over the country with her career as an author, and, you know, the son never became a prosecutor, but is a successful, I want to say he works for, like, an ad agency, or real estate, anyway, so they have lives that are nothing like their parents' lives, um, so that disconnect between, like, where you came from and where you are now and how you got there and what you think about what you left behind. So there's a lot of different things going on in this novel. It's really, really good. Uh, So that is Please Look After Mom by Kyung Suk Shin.
Okay, last question. This is from Amanda. She says, I recently moved back to my small hometown, a place I never saw myself living again to take a job. I'm a single, childless woman in her mid-30s, which around here is an oddity at best and a thing to be pitied at worst, but mostly is used as a way to dismiss my opinions on any and everything. The only bar is in the grocery store. I have to drive 60 miles to go to a bookstore. And while I see myself as a moderate conservative, around here I'm a liberal elitist. This is a town where people get stuck, and I'm terrified of that happening to me. I'm looking for book recommendations to give me hope that this is that this move is only a stepping stone to get me to where I really want to be, doing what I love, and not a permanent situation. Okay, so my first uh, pick for you is Shine, Shine, Shine by Lydia Netzer, which I love so much. Um, so the main character, her name is Sunny, and she lives in... Virginia in a small, well, it's portrayed as like a small town in the book. It's Norfolk, which is not actually a small town, but whatever. Anyway, so she lives in Virginia in a, a quiet neighborhood. I'll put it that way. Um, she has kind of a perfect life. Her husband's name is Maxon. He's an astronaut. He's just got on a rocket to go to the moon. Um, and she's a housewife and they have a small child and she's pregnant. Her son is on the autism spectrum and she, and so is her husband. Um, and so, and she's like heavily pregnant when the book opens. Um, and everything is, you know, perfect. Like, she has a very stereotypical Stepford wifey kind of life. And then at the beginning of the book, she gets into, like, a thunderbender, like a very minor car accident, and her wig falls off, and you realize that she's completely bald, and that everything about her life is basically a lie. Um, and so you start flashing back to her childhood growing up with Maxon, where they, um, how they met, how they fell in love, um, what it was, what's it like, what it's like for her to be in a romantic relationship with somebody who's on the spectrum, and then also how they went from being very, uh, like, unique people with their own dreams and their own uh, desires and, like, a need to get out of the small town where they grew up to living, like, this very stereotypical life that's suffocating both of them. Um, and so the reason why I picked this is not just because of, like, the small town stuff, but also because... The book is really about Sunny embracing her weird and realizing that this life that she's constructed for herself over the past couple of years is not a final judgment on who she has to be or who her family has to be, uh, which I think is kind of what you're sort of eating right now. So that's Shine, Shine, Shine by Lydia Netzer. All right. I picked for you one novel and one nonfiction book. Before I get into them, I want to refer you to a post um, by one of our contributors, Tracy Shapley, who did a 100 books about starting over uh, list that I think you might find some good reading material in. Um, because, yeah, there's all different kinds of ways to start over. And I, she has a really broad uh, range of books you can read in that vein. Um, so my first my novel pick for you is Ladder of Years by Ann Tyler, which is about a woman named Delia who has a husband who's a doctor and three um, older children. And, you know, she's kind of feeling pretty taken for granted. Her kids don't really need her anymore. Her married life is pretty monotonous. Like, what is she even doing? Um, and one day they are on a vacation to a beach resort. They go every year. And she, like, just leaves. She just walks away um, and goes somewhere else and starts a new life. And um, so it's a little bit – I didn't realize I had, like, a disappearing mother's theme this episode. But anyway, okay. So <laughs> this is, like, a different kind of – disappearance so so it's about her you know first of all like why she would walk away um and then it's about her trying to reinvent herself and like what that is like um and of course you know it's a novel so everything kind of spirals around and there's a resolution etc etc but um I think you might find that like a lot of the you know emotional content of the book is is perhaps not like it's not anything like your situation obviously this is a woman who's older and has children and you know is walking out of a life that she feels like is boring and you're you know moving in what you feel is a backward direction but just you know that emotional like kick to like oh, this is not what I wanted. Like, that feeling. That's what this book is about. Um, so there might be some stuff that resonates for you in there. And also, just, like, Ann Tyler's a good writer. So uh, that is Ladder of Years by Ann Tyler. Okay, my second one is Excellent Women by Barbara Pym. And I picked this because it's one of my favorite books in, like, a, a subgenre I'm obsessed with, which is uh, single women without children who are aging and angry about how people treat them, um, which is a small but excellent subgenre of books. And one I think that you would maybe really benefit from right now. <laughs> um, so the thing that I like about this one is that it was written in the 50s, um, I think. Or it takes place in the 50s, but I know Barbara Pym wrote it at least three or four decades ago. Um, and so the main character's name is Mildred. She's in her 30s, abouts, and she lives in London. Um, but it's set in the early 50s, so it's, like, not the London of now. It's, like, a, a London that's still 
much more villagey or small town feeling. Um, and so she is in a crowd of what's known as excellent women, which is a thing that the main character like says in her head about her and her friends. These are women who like mind their own business. Um, they mostly come from small English villages. They work, they keep their head down. They don't have children. They're single. Um, they don't cause any scandal. They go to church and do, you know, like good works for the neighbors. And they're just, just generally like useful and, and, and really, really good at their jobs and have to be twice as good as all the mediocre men who they're surrounded with, of which there are many. Um, and so it's like, it's a comfortable life and she's just kind of doing the thing. Um, and so it's a really quiet and short book about what that is like for her. And she lives in a house with two apartments. And then in, like, the middle of the book, a, a new couple moves in to the second apartment. And they are not like anything she's used to. They're married, but they're kind of progressive. They are both in really kind of glamorous jobs. They both traveled. Um, their marriage is really awful. And <laughs> Mildred has to, like, listen to a lot of yelling um, from them. They bring home very odd friends that Mildred's like, I don't know about having these people in my house. And so she has to navigate all these complications with people who she doesn't necessarily get along with. So it's very, like, quiet about like one person's life but she has there's a there's a lot of instances in the book where she's treated a particular way or spoken down to using like particular coded language because she doesn't have children and because she's single and she's just like not having any of it like she calls people out on that kind of stuff which i love and she doesn't take pity dates and she's just like not here for any of that sort of thing she just wants to live her life and do the things that she likes to do and kind of like be left alone and hang out with the friends, and this is what she wants. So I think that that will really speak to that that particular part of living in a small town that's irritating you, how people talk to you or treat you because you're single and you don't have kids, which is just the worst. So um, it's the worst that they talk to you that way. It's not the worst that you're single and don't have kids. That's awesome. So that's Excellent Women by Barbara Pym. All right. You mentioned that you are trying to break into a new career, and so uh, a book that I have used to like deeply consider what I am doing with my life <laughs> is "What You're Really Meant to Do" by Robert S. Kaplan. The title sounds really woo, but like this is the Robert S. Kaplan from the Harvard Business School, who like you know kept like they have the whole Kaplan series of like test prep. Oh, whoa. yeah, yeah, it's that Robert <laughs> S. Kaplan. Um, so it's not woo at all. In fact, it's a very specific, like almost workbook kind of book about like figuring out what it is that you are wanting like and you know uh, able to do and then how to get there um and there's all kinds of like exercises and like you know little ways to think about like cuz it it can be really hard when you're trying to switch things to like maintain your momentum especially when you're having to be in a place that you don't really want to be in order to get there um so I feel like this is really good for that because it's it's like okay let's focus on like what is the end goal like what are the steps I'm taking why am I taking them like what am I going to get out of this like it's all of those things that you want to think about and like have like a little roadmap for yourself of why like remembering why it is that you decided to do this thing um which is a real like that's a real life choice that we make sometimes. So I think this book will really help you to feel like, you know, there's a reason for what you're doing. Um, it's going to suck for a little while, but like there's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. And like, here's how you're going to get to that light. Um, so that is what you're really meant to do by Robert S. Kaplan. And that's our show. Hooray. Huzzah. So thank you for listening. Please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. It helps make the show easier for other people to find. You can find us on social media. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson, and Jen is at Jen IRL, Jen with two N's. And thank you to our sponsors who were us. So go check out in the club <laughs> our new um, newsletter about books, uh, book clubs and book groups that Jen is writing. We'll leave a link to sign up for that in the show notes. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.